Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Adrian Han Show, where I speak with folks to explore the nuances of modern work and its idiosyncrasies. As the world of work becomes more and more dynamic, upskilling the workforce becomes crucial. And employees realize this too. A Randstad study revealed that while only 43% of Singapore workers said they were committed to staying with their current employers, 91% said they were interested in learning and development opportunities in the workplace. Employees in tech roles in particular benefit greatly from upskilling and reskilling due to the complex and ever-changing nature of the tech industry and its capabilities. To speak with us more about this is Ryan Mayer. He has over 25 years of experience in the tech and educational sector, including almost a decade at General Assembly, and has built the company's enterprise presence in the APEC from ground up. General Assembly, or GA for short, has helped Fortune 100 companies, startups, and other businesses identify tech talents, develop their talent pipelines in future-proof areas such as coding, software engineering, UX design, and many others. Hello, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Adrian. Nice to be here. Where does this podcast find you? Uh, it finds me in Byron Bay, Australia. I moved up here about a year ago from Sydney uh, as we work predominantly remotely in the region. Uh, so I'm about, I guess, eight hours north of Sydney by car. Ah, wow. That's amazingly far. <laughs> it is. And uh, what exactly does General Assembly do specifically? I know it's in the education space. How different is it from the many other educational companies that are out there? Yeah, the best way to explain it is that General Assembly provides proven pathways to the modern economy. Uh, and that can be um, through the learning of new skills. It can be for individuals uh, or employees of large organizations um, or citizens uh, that, is, that are sponsored by their, their government. Um, but we've been in operation since 2010. And the best way uh, that I always come back to, to describing what we do is, is providing people an on-ramp to the, the modern economy jobs. Ah, that's a nice way of putting it. So what are some of the examples of training programs or some of the careers that people uh, get to jump straight into after General Assembly? Sure. So we generally um, split things into, uh, into two buckets. Uh, there are those that come to us to reskill, uh, and that means to learn something new that they can then go and work in that field or that discipline. Uh, and then, oh, loosely speaking, upskilling. Uh, and that's typically you're working, touching data at a large bank or large insurance company, and you want to get better, or you want to go from a data analyst, say, to a data scientist. But generally speaking, we operate in um, sort of modern economy disciplines, such as digital marketing, user experience, design, software engineering, data, and product. Uh, with now, I think we probably could say AI is its own a separate new category, although it does cross uh, a lot of those uh, existing disciplines. It, it sounds like you guys are focusing very much on what most people would call the sexy careers out there. And I guess there's a huge reason behind it because it's uh, definitely in huge demand. It is. And I think education can be this great equalizer. Uh, technology and um, tech, if you will, is already a certain type of equalizer. But if you're trying to get someone into a, um, into a role where they can have an impact in a job. Uh, and, and we do that in typically three months through our immersive reskilling programs. It doesn't, you have to focus on one specific skill and those skills, you know, you could say sexy, but really those they're in demand. Uh, so we try and always stay uh, ahead of the curve as in, um, towards what's in demand, in demand in the workforce and in demand for individuals. Earlier on, you mentioned about reskilling and upskilling. A few weeks ago, I was at an event and someone was asking, uh, how do we look at reskilling differently from upskilling? Uh, for a second there, I was dumbstruck. I do not know how to really answer that question. Could you break it down for the audience? Firstly, what's the difference sure. and how should we approach it differently from the employer standpoint, assuming you are in a job, and also from the learner standpoint? Um it's pretty simple. Um, upskilling means you want to get a slightly higher salary and an existing role. Uh, reskilling is you want to burn the house down and do something completely different. And so we can take someone with little to no coding uh, or software engineering experience and get them job ready as a junior software engineer in three months. Uh, for upskilling, the, the path is usually lighter. 
Uh, it might take, um, you know, it, it might be a 40 hour program over 10 weeks that someone does while they're working. Uh, and so in the back of their mind, they might be doing projects that will accelerate their trajectory at work, um, but not necessarily change the, the job family that they're in. But it's really semantics. And, and what, I like to refer to everything as reskilling, <laughs> but it is, it is a bit semantic. Yeah, it does sounds very similar in a way. So there are literally, from a learning perspective, there's literally not much of a difference. You are still ultimately acquiring something new. It's just whether it's adjacent or perhaps something entirely different altogether. It's, it's the objective. Um, and, and some people might reskill very slowly over the course of a couple of years into, um, you know, into a new career career, but the way that we see it is uh, we want to create the, I, I guess the highest, uh, time for value spent. Uh, so if you come to us for three months, um, we know with a very high degree of certainty that you will be able to get a job in, in that discipline, in the, in the modern economy. And something that I would also like to get your help to dispel, uh, I have met, uh, across the course of my career, met up with, uh, hiring managers, recruiters. And I even have friends. I have a football buddy who went through uh, such a training system, a training program, a bootcamp-ish kind of program where it's very intense mm -hmm. and trying to acquire new skill set. But and maybe it's more of a Singapore thing. There's always this comparison. Oh, three months, and you manage to acquire that skill set. But you know, in a university, it will take four years. So how how could I make sure that you actually are well schooled, well trained in that? What do you have to say to? Such people. Yeah, so there, there's a there there are a couple ways to look at that. I, I like to flip that on the head because I think traditionally, and and I'm from I guess the old school, but traditionally there is a um, an association of time with the value of your education. Uh, if you're getting a university degree, that's going to take typically four years, an advanced degree maybe another two to three years, and you're going to come out of you know out of that with the the proper credential to um, you know have a, a beautiful career for the rest of your life, or at least that used to be the, uh, that used to be the, the exchange. Uh, and what's happened over the past 20 to 25 years is that the world just started moving very quickly. Um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, all of those people that, uh, I graduated with that went to become diplomats or lawyers or bankers, uh, those that are thriving now are the ones that have picked up new uh, new skills or are able to do that very specific thing they study in a, a wide new context. Um, so I think, mm. you know, this is, you know, General Assembly occupies a very narrow niche. Uh, we are, our whole existence is predicated on getting someone up to speed and job ready in as short of amount of time as possible. Whereas universities, there are other uh, there are other reasons to be there. You know, people need to grow academically. They want to uh, learn how to think, um, you know, creatively or, you know, mm. so it's not, we're not trying to teach those soft skills. We're not trying to uh, necessarily create a, a, a well-rounded person. We want to put someone through the ringer and mimic sort of the, the pressure you go through in a startup so that you're, you come out and you're ready to continue learning but to deploy the knowledge that you've gained. Um, so as a result, we typically shy away from credentialing um, and we focus more on projects, having people build projects while they're in the classroom. And so that when they graduate General Assembly, they have a portfolio of work. So when an employer says, oh, you know, I see that you did a software engineering immersive at General Assembly, how do I know that you, um, you know, that you could be a software engineer at this company? And that individual can show the work that they've done and explain the, you know, the technical bars that they had to, to pass to, to submit that project and, and really get into it. Um, and I think that's a lot more powerful um, as a, you know, at, from the employer's standpoint than someone who simply has a credential but may or may not have the actual chops to do the work. It also seems like uh, the educational system or the traditional education system has always functioned or imagined how education has been from a very earlier time where things doesn't move so fast. Uh, I remember this great quote from Professor Scott Galloway. Uh, in 10 years, things may not have happened. Things may not have changed a lot, but 10 years can suddenly happen in two weeks. And I think we are seeing that, uh, especially so when ChatGPT first come into the scene. Before we can get used to 3.5, 4 is out. Before we can get used to 4, so many other things are out there as well. Meet journey, etc. So 
really trying to be a bit more nimble, a bit more agile, trying to go with the flow of the wave of the water may seem a much more practical means uh, as we continue to see how people are being displaced in so many jobs nowadays. Except if you have to explain to your parents that you're going to get a job out of a three-month program. <laughs> um, I think there's a, you know, there are definitely generational divides. Um, and, you know, the university I went to in the States was founded in 1789. And that was a big, you know, when I was going there, I thought, oh, this is amazing that, you know, the change, you know, it's probably resisted change for hundreds of years in order to, you know, in order to maintain um, its prominence. But after you get out of university or if you decide not to go to university and you want to adapt skills, this is something, you know, this is a, a conversation you'll be having for the rest of your life. Um, and I think, uh, you know, to your point about ChatGPT, there's nothing better than taking ChatGPT and showing someone who's over the age of 70 what, you know, having, opening them up to it. And, and because it blows their mind, it becomes very visceral and very real um, where the world is is changing. And, and you know, I, I've heard it, uh, I think in the Wall Street Journal this week, it was someone like an author likened it to the in invention of the steam engine um, or, or, you know, the steam power. People didn't exactly know how thermodynamics worked necessarily when it was invented. And that's the same with AI. A lot of the people, especially at OpenAI, are saying very specifically, they don't know exactly how it works. Um, but I think as we, you know, as we start to harness it and use it in our daily lives and, and understand it better, you know, there will be a, a step change. It's really hard to project forward who the winners and losers will be. It, it does feel... You know, I'm, I'm a bit of an older guy, so it does feel a lot like the early 2000s again, when people just started throwing crazy money at, you know, any idea that was .com, uh, pets.com or, you know, anything. So I, I think it'll take some time to change out. And, you know, the French have this saying, the, the, you know, the plus change, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, I don't think it's going to completely you know, up in the way that people work or the jobs that are out there, but it will be, uh, it will be a significant part of the, of the conversation. And if you take that through, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, if you take that through to education, um, you know, this is all of a sudden a magic genie that you have in your, in your pocket or in your laptop. And apparently the, the usage numbers of ChatGPT went way down when school and university broke for the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, so there are a lot of students using it to, to write papers or, you know, to, to maybe do some critical thinking exercises that they should be doing themselves. But I sort of see it as, um, again, I remember when I first started using a TI-85 calculator, a graphing calculator in the classroom, everyone said that, you know, th this is going to ruin children. They won't know how to do proper maths, um, but it's just a tool. Uh, and if you, I think if you look at it like a tool, um, you know, even though it's seemingly magic, it, it will get incorporated into ways of working and there will be some really awesome opportunities in the next, I think, five years or decade, how those will shake out. Um, I, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, I'm scratching my head, but with, with regards to education, and I think this, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to make this prediction because I think in 10 years when I look at this interview, hopefully this holds true, but the whole notion of asynchronous learning, um, I, I think it was pretty much a poor value proposition beforehand. Uh, there are people that can go to a massive online open course or a MOOC and, and get something out of it and, and, and push themselves um, and be self-motivated. But the, the whole notion of asynchronous learning, I think um, it, it changes quite dramatically. The, the notion that you're going to serve up videos and people are going to watch 40 hours of videos to learn how to code um, or, you know, when they can have a genie in their, uh, in their phone or in their laptop, that's going to have a two-way conversation with them. Um, I think that changes. Um, I think that changes a lot dramatically. Um, so there are a lot of companies that have invested quite a bit into, you know, quote unquote, asynchronous learning platforms. And, and I don't know that those will be in any way attractive <laughs> in the future. Um, but that's just, that, that's my, um, you know, that's my idea. I personally have taken quite a number of MOOCs. Uh, they are incredibly efficient, at least the way they're being positioned, but I seldom get to complete any of those programs because after a while, there's just no motivation. It's like trying to get you to do a workout at home versus in the yes. gym where you have the peer support, sometimes the peer pressure 
but you will still do it. You may even push yourself to lift heavier, to run faster, but it's all because of the environment. And, and to your earlier point, uh, I, I remember a running joke that uh, we should really take care of our health nowadays because for all you know, your future doctor may have passed his or her exam with ChatGPT. That's a very good point. Um, and I think in the future, people probably will be self-diagnosing. I mean, they already do with Google, but um, you know, I, I, I tell my children that um, you know, traditionally, I think every parent tells their kids, you should be a lawyer or a doctor and you know, you'll, that's a safe career. Um, and I'm, I tell my kids, you do not want to be a lawyer. You do not want to be a doctor because it's hard to predict how these, these new technologies are going to, um, you know, how those are going to play out. Um, and maybe everyone then has a doctor in their, their pocket, or maybe you, you're wearing a device and it, it kicks off so much data that a, a computer or an algorithm can tell you what your next health scare or, you know, what your next health challenge may be. Um, I think there's, um, you know, that gets me excited. The, the amount for, you know, crunching data that's, you know, heretofore was difficult to crunch at scale. Uh, now, you know, maybe that becomes a foundation model for a health app or health AI app. I mean, there, there are just so many, there's so many applications and I think people are running in every different direction, but, but the good thing is we've, you know, as as we've tried to ingest the the changes at General Assembly, we've been very careful with what um, you know with how we deploy this. So we've taken modules on AI and especially generative AI because we we've been teaching machine learning for the last five years uh, in the context of of data science and and um, and and so that's a certain type of AI, a certain type of automation, obviously. But as you look at generative AI, we've developed modules for generative AI in sort of every discipline that we offer. Um, and then we've gone and recently released a, a, a two-day generative AI workshop uh, for professionals, for working professionals. So this is for our uh, sort of our core enterprise clients that want to start thinking about this and, and want to um, start investing in this, but really teaching people how to fish first, uh, because we don't come to a company and say, this is how you should deploy generative AI. Um, it's a, you know, it, it's a consultative conversation. We can say, this is what prompt, good prompt engineering might look like up to a point, but the company has to decide how, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to mask this data internally? How are we, how are we going to leverage this? Will this allow us to sort of combine and draw analysis across two large data sets that we couldn't previously, um, you know, reach across. So there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of really interesting use cases, uh, and especially a lot coming from, from Singapore and coming from the region. Uh, there are a lot of companies that are uh, quite large and structural to their um, domestic economies um, and have access to enormous amounts of data that heretofore they haven't really known how to, uh, you know, how to leverage. And so it's, uh, it's exciting times. It definitely sounds so. I'd like to turn the spotlight back onto you and to understand a bit about how you actually got into the educational space and how it eventually led to General Assembly. Sure. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, 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 I've always prefaced every conversation I have with that these, these opinions are my own and not representative of General Assembly. Uh, you know, I like to be able to speak candidly, but, um, both of my parents are, are teachers. Uh, I actually had my father in high school, uh, and he would, you know, try and, um, deploy s surprise quizzes or whatnot. And I, I was always a good, very good traditional student. Um, and after university, I had a few jobs consulting this, that, and worked for a large manufacturing, Japanese manufacturing firm. And I was so bored. And I remember thinking like, if this is it, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I, I can't, I can't do this same thing for the rest of my life. Um, and so probably around 2000. What, what exactly was the boring part? And what was your expectation before jumping in? Um, it, it was just a very hierarchical environment. Um, again, it was a company that was started by a samurai and had been around for 150 years. And, uh, and so it was, you know, and I was working out of the U.S., but for a Japanese company. And it just, it was extremely hierarchical. And, and there are American companies that are extremely hierarchical as well. But the notion of starting something up was always looming large in my mind. And so 
um, I, I kind of rearranged my life and, um, you know, around 2010 to help my mother start an education company uh, that's focused on, um, there's a company called Minds in Motion, uh, and it's focused on physiological development of children. Uh, so most, uh, most development for kids is seen through the cognitive lens uh, and, and what we've developed and, and we've done a few scientific studies that are peer reviewed showing the, the benefits of putting kids through physiological exercises uh, and building up their sort of physiological systems at, in addition to support those cognitive systems. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of um, emergent research on the, the benefit of doing that. Um, and so that was, that was my mom's passion. I thought, okay, this is, you know, I, I like starting up companies, so I'll help her get that off the ground. And, uh, and that company persists to, to this day. There are probably 80,000 kids in the U.S. that do minds and motion exercises in their public school classrooms across 10 or 15 states every day. Um, and, and so it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not one of these things that's, that's become like this huge runaway success, but it really, it really works. And it, you know, it requires teachers to, uh, you know, to, to participate and, uh, and the benefits when you apply it to a whole school are, are quite good. Uh, and so that kind of brought me back towards education. Uh, and then I, um, I started an, an investment company for early stage ideas coming out of research uh, universities in the U.S. And that was a total flop. It was one of these things. I had no business doing it, but I, you know, I, I had a lot of energy. I thought, okay, well, you know, this is definitely... Uh, this is definitely the way in the future. This is how someone might uh, invest in the next Facebook and, you know, built a platform and, and went through a lot of emotions and ultimately self-funded it for a lot longer than I should have. And uh, as that was winding down, General Assembly was, uh, I was just starting up. Uh, and so I met, uh, I, I met with someone in um, what we call Silicon Beach in California, uh, Los Angeles area, uh, Santa Monica area, uh, someone who is um, sort of the on the ground with General Assembly, and they said, "Hey, we're looking for someone to to run our operations here." Uh, and so I, I you know, grabbed that opportunity, and that was two thousand. So it's been almost uh, almost a decade with General Assembly, and so I've seen uh, I've seen us grow, um, and then came over to this area of the world in two thousand sixteen to run our uh, to run and grow our Asia Pacific operations. Um, and so now we have, um, um, as you probably know, we have a campus in Singapore. We have operations in Australia. Um, we have um, a campus in Kuala Lumpur through a, a partner, Academy GA. Uh, we have a partner in, uh, in Thailand. And so we have a, a campus in Bangkok uh, through the True Digital Academy. Uh, and earlier this year, uh, we officially announced and, and commenced our operations in Japan through, um, through a partnership there with the Mori Building Group. Uh, they make the um, sort of the the most futuristic looking skyscrapers in Tokyo, uh, so we've we've been able to grow at almost a clip of um, sort of one country a year for the last three or four years, uh, even through the pandemic, uh, and so that's uh, you know that's very much on on my mind is where you know where do we go next and how do we um, how do we bring our sort of our type of education into uh, you know into a new environment in a new country where, you know, we might not know that much about. So we're always looking for, you know, stellar local partners. Hmm. I, I would really like to understand uh, across your days in General Assembly, since you started with them so many years ago, uh, how has it evolved to cater to the changing needs of learners? Because this is something that many people would have against the traditional universities or schools. They never change their cur curriculum. It's so hard to even get them to even change maybe the color of the textbook, let alone the content. Uh, but you, we were talking about how things are much more dynamic, how fast things are changing. I'm very certain the way training were conducted when you first joined uh, would be very different right now. How do you account for all that? How does the school actually adapt those changes and make sure those are the right changes to implement to begin with? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. The sort of our North Star metric is typically the outcomes rates for individuals that go through our, um, our consumer-facing campus system. How quickly does that individual get a job in that discipline um, and at what rate? Um, and, and we publish these every year. Uh, and pre-pandemic, we were always above sort of 
of individuals grad, who graduate our programs getting a job within 180 days. Um, it's dropped down a bit since the pandemic uh, and since a lot of the uh, instruction has gone remote, but we're, you know, in the high 80% so now. So it's not, you know, it's not a, it hasn't fallen off a cliff. It's just, we've always internally wanted it to be above 90%. And so that's really keeps us year over year, very honest with the, the curriculum that we teach. Uh, also, we draw upon a tremendous number of really highly, um, highly trained, highly, or super smart rather, um, instructor practitioners who might come and teach one or two or three courses with us and then might leave their mark on some aspect of the curriculum. We're always trying to take those, um, those suggestions or, and, and help evolve the curriculum because we want to keep that job number as high as possible. Um, and that sort of plays out in terms of word of mouth. If someone comes to General Assembly and they give their you know, hard-earned money and, and three months of their time to us or, uh, and they don't get a job out of it, the world's going to hear about it um, and, and their friends are going to hear about it. And, and so one of our biggest drivers of growth has always been word of mouth, um, even for those individuals coming for an upskilling course where it might just help them secure a promotion or, um, you know, or, or their company is, is running something at scale and it helps them, you know, it helps them advance their career within, within a company sponsored event or a sponsored course. Um, it really, you know, it really comes down to, to word of mouth and, and, you know, that ever, um, ever popular, uh, net promoter score. Um, so we try and, you know, we try and harness as much data, uh, from the, the classroom to see that we're on track, that we're offering the best instructor practitioners. And, and that's another, I think, important point of differentiation. Um, when you sort of think about traditional education and the, the experience you'll have at General Assembly, all, all of our instructors are what we call instructor practitioners. They're individuals that have done or are doing the, the work um, in the real world. And they're coming to the classroom to sort of demonstrate that work and to help train people so that they can do that work. But they're not, um, you know, it's not coming from a theoretical place. Um, and again, if you're trying to teach someone a new skill in a short period of time, that seems to be the best, um, the best way to go about it. It's also persisted since the time of Aristotle um, for over you know, two millennia, uh, where you know for the things that you know not how to do, you learn by doing. So I think it's um, you know it, it works and and it can work remotely. Um, I, I I'm a big fan of in person um, and you know to, to what you mentioned earlier about if it's working out or if it's studying or if it's you know just paying attention if you're with a cohort of like-minded individuals who are, you know, invested in learning something new, you're, it just, it raises the bar. And, and that's kind of an important point. I think that sometimes gets left behind, um, but it's, uh, it's powerful. And according to our data, 25 people is the, like the optimum number of people to have in a classroom. Uh, so we have over a hundred thousand, uh, graduates from our programs and we've done, we've done a lots of analysis and you know, based on the number of people that for whatever reason, the highest, um, value for time spent or the highest net promoter scores come when you have not 24, not 26, but 25 people. Um, and I, you know, I think it's because it allows people to kind of break off into groups, but there are enough people that you can, you know, you pay attention, but that's, uh, that's, that's our magic number. So we kind of build everything around a 25 person classroom. So how many students right now are on remote learning versus how many of them are actually doing it in person? Um, now with General Assembly, I'd say we're 80% remote and 20% in person. Um, as we, you know, as we navigated the pandemic, we, we were really good about moving all of our operations entirely remote within, you know, a week. Um, and, and that seemed, that seemed to work. And so. We, um, you know, and, and the world has changed. Pe consumer tastes have changed. People, you know, don't necessarily want to come into uh, a school five days a week. So even for the in-person courses that we still run, they're typically hybrid. They might be three days um, on site and two days remote or, or vice versa, uh, but there will always be some, uh, some in-person time. Um, but yeah, we've, we've really, um, we've really sort of jumped this, um, jumped over into a remote, a remote first environment. 
I'd like to next get your take on uh, picking the right training program or the right course. Uh, in Singapore specifically, I'm sure you may have heard of uh, some aspect of Skills Future. Mm-hmm. And that is where a government program and there's a Skills Future credit where any adult, I think above 25 years old, uh, would be able to get a sum of money that you can spend on training programs. And there are like tens, hundreds of thousands of different programs to look at. But having said that, the last time the stats were released, the adoption rate is still relatively low. And based on my conversation with people who hasn't really exhausted their SkillsFuture credit, it's because they don't even know where to begin. Uh, because there's just so many to pick from, right? And you only have that uh, small amount of money. Uh, from a course selection perspective, uh, what would you advise your uh, people who may be looking to take something? How would you advise your cousin? If yeah. he or she may be a bit lost, I'm not really sure which one to take. Should I go AI? Should I go data? Should they just look at the trend or are there? Well, I think um, we, we, there's a bit to unpack there. First of all, the skills future credit is I think $500 Singaporean. Um, and you can use that on a whole, there's a whole catalog of courses you can take. And none of which are going to get you a new job. Uh, that's just too, too little money, too short of time, most of the courses. And I think we have some in there, some short form uh, courses, but really in that scenario, you know, you, you want to, I hate to use this expression, you want to kiss as many frogs as possible and see which one turns into, uh, turns into the prince or princess. But you want to do something that you're passionate about. Uh, because I think, um, you know, obviously you can you know, make cold calculations about where you think the world's going and what you need to be studying. But at the end of the day, if you're not doing something that you feel innately good at or innately passionate about, you're probably not going to be as happy or as productive as you could be. Um, so th- that's a great, a great way for Singaporeans to, to choose from a broad variety of things and maybe do two or three small courses and, um, and, and just get a sense for, oh, I, I think this is something I could go, you know, go much deeper on. Um, in Singapore, we've had this, I call it probably the most successful government, edu- government supported education pro- program in the world. Uh, that's been with the, the IMDA, the Infocom Media Development Authority. It's part of the, the tech immersion and placement program, um, whereby the IMDA pays a portion, I think 65 to, 65 to 90% of the tuition for a three-month immersive course. But the way that it's structured is that um, it's success-based. So it's based only on successful graduation um, and on successful job placement. So it keeps everyone uh, tied together and, and it's probably the most elegant design for a government program in that it, it aligns the, the needs of the individual with the needs of the government, with the needs of the, um, the educator like General Assembly. Uh, and so that has been running for now over, um, over seven years in Singapore. And we've had an above, nine, we've always had an above 90% total rate of putting people into jobs in the discipline that they studied within 180 days. So it's been really, it's been tremendously successful. And every time I sit down with someone from the Australian government uh, or someone from the Thai government uh, and, and explain this uh, or the Filipino government and, and, you know, explain how, you know, how good this works, how, how much value it creates for, for everyone involved. Um, there's no real leakage of, um, you know, you can't work that system because it's based on results. Um, and it always gets, um, I should say, bast- the, the government always kind of takes it and like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Now, now let's take it to committee and, and, you know, turn this horse into a camel. Um, and, and so you end up with something that, well, maybe they want to hit, you know, a broader swath of people. And, you know, they, we're always trying to be as sensitive with governments as possible because sometimes the, the goal is to just, um, try and give every, you know, give 10,000 people sort of a small leg up rather than taking a thousand people and putting them into new jobs. But my position and, and personally, I believe that you're as a government, you're much better off moving people into modern economy jobs because for every one person you move into a new career and, and that career is going to you know, give that person stability over a long period of time. They're going to have increased salary uh, and earning capabilities as they progress that then that the, the second and third order effects of that are, you know, a, a magnitude larger of, of the individual's touch. So in, in my mind, that's always the best use of, of government money. And we, you know, we can show a government how 
the tax, you know, you'll, you'll basically pay for this program in terms of, uh, you know, increased tax base over the next couple of years. Um, but I, I, you know, the conversations with governments are always, always interesting and, um, they you know, we're always full of, uh, full of ideas, but we, we come to every conversation sort of through that, um, you know, through the lens of what we're doing in Singapore, because it's so elegant and so simple and it works so well. And uh, my next question is really on the way uh, younger learners learn. I've read a report somewhere that because of how uh, the current generation are being exposed to things like Netflix, TikTok, and all that, you have shorter attention span and they expect entertainment out of everything. You wouldn't exactly call learning a course, whether it's three months or four-year degree, at entertaining in any way. Um, I, I know it's a bit too much to ask for a school to entirely Netflix the curriculum, but are there changes that any school has to make in order to cater to a better learning experience for the younger learners? That's, you know, that's an interesting question. I think the attention span of everyone has deteriorated. <laughs> um, and, and maybe it's most pronounced with, uh, you know, with a younger generation, but you know, I remember it, you know, writing papers in university and watching interviews on TV when I was younger and the, the questions would be long form. And then this is one of the, the things I love about the podcast format is you can actually have a longer form conversation rather than trying to jam everything into a, a, a soundbite. Um, but to answer your, your original question, we don't really manipulate things to try and make them easier to consume. Uh, what we try and do um, on the other end of it is to get people more motivated um, and, and to make it as interactive as possible so that someone is learning something by, by doing it. Um, and, and so that kind of takes a, a bit out of the, um, you know, it takes a, a, a bit out of the, the wind out of the sails because if someone is, you know, week over week doing a new project and they're scrambling to learn something and deploy it or, um, you know, integrate a, a, a database or an API into a software engineering project, they're really kind of, you know, the instructors are helping them, but they're trying to, they're trying to complete this project as they're, you know, as they're learning it. And so that's, I think that works very well across generations. And because if you take a very passive approach and it's sort of, you know, we're going to provide edutainment and all you have to do is sit there and consume this, you know, this media slash education that we you know, presented for you, you're not going to get a good outcome. And that kind of goes back to why I'm very skeptical about um, a lot of the asynchronous learning platforms and, and asynchronous learning, again, in my opinion, but it does feel like it works for a very small number of people who are extremely self-motivated and, and disciplined. And a lot of people will start something, but not finish it uh, because it's, it's very passive. And so, you know, it's one of the things I worry about with uh, the younger, younger generation, you know, my kids that are eight, 10 years old, is that I want them to be builders of technology, not just consumers of technology. And, and most kids right now are consumers of technology. It's like, I want an iPad because it's going to give me a game to consume or a, a video to consume. Uh, but, you know, I think it's imperative on, on all of us to teach the next generation how to, how to build things with technology and how to learn about what's happening behind the, the scenes of that wonderful device that you just want to watch Netflix for kids on. We spoke earlier on about how AI is like uh, the dot-com in 2000, where it's really changing how many companies function and how many people approach the way they work. Uh, I've also read a lot of studies uh, about how traditional schools, especially, they're very fearful of AI. As we mentioned earlier on, you have people using ChatGPT to write essay and all that. But having said that, it is still generally a good enabler across different industries, across different functions. Uh, is AI something that GA is also using internally to make itself more efficient, to scale the way training is being conducted, or maybe to improve your curriculum? We're not using it yet to improve curriculum because I think it comes back to, it's an idea generator, but you don't know if those ideas are going to be even correct or not. So it really forces, you know, we're encouraging everyone to use it to, you know, especially grant writing, these things that are so boring and, and, you know, don't really, um, 
necessarily art value creation exercises. <laughs> we'll, we'll use it for that where you just, you have to tick a box. Um, and, and sometimes if you, you know, you want some marketing ideas or you want, you know, it's a great way to, uh, just to kind of bounce some, you know, give me some ideas or, or take this text that I've written and make it thinner or make it, uh, you know, make it more impactful. Um, so everyone's playing with it. Um, I think it, you know, you see the limitations, um, I think quite quickly and you, you also, um, you know, you have to, you still have to edit everything. So we're all becoming kind of editors in a sense. Um, and, and I can imagine, a, you know, I, I can imagine a future where schools will, you know, for the sort of critical reasoning tasks and the, the exams might force people to go back to pen and paper um, so that, you know, you, you, you can use ChatGPT all you want to write your papers, edit them, whatever. But when it comes down to it and you have to, you know, end of the, end of the semester, end of the term, you know, for a, your final grade, you have to come up with, um, you know, an idea and articulate it and, and support it. I think that might go back to pen and paper um, or, or to air gapped computers that you can't, you know, they, they can't access it because um, I think it just, it makes those core skills of, of, of humans so much more valuable uh, because everyone can now be, uh, you know, a, a mid-level uh, or a mediocre um, in, as a, as a professor, you know, I can write, you know, papers that make you sound fantastic, but uh, so hopefully it makes people uh, more terse uh, and, and helps them get to the mm. point uh, more quickly. That's my I optimistic someone's take. Out there, I can imagine someone out there already working on a prototype of infusing ChatGPT into a pen. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yes, I know. Uh, so maybe the next there's no Kickstarter way. campaign. Yeah, maybe there's no way back. I don't. I don't know. But it and, is. I, and last I think, question before I let you oh, go. Uh, sure. How do you see the future of learning uh, as we look at how things have evolved over the past few years, especially over the past two years? Uh, where do you see learning in five to ten years' time? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I, I I don't think it will change as much as people think that it will. Um, I, I think the notion of of truth will become much more, um, much more important, uh, because as what I'm saying earlier, the, the, um, foundational models for some of the, the large AI and generative AI, um, services don't always spit out a correct answer. It might sound correct, uh, but it might be factually incorrect. Uh, so being able to parse through, you know, parse through arguments and, and parse through large sets of, of written data and, and come up with your own idea about, is that actually truthful or, or did that, you know, was that well-reasoned? I think that'll be much more important, but those are things that universities have been teaching for, you know, for a long time. I do think there's a misalignment um, and this is predominantly, I think, more prevalent in the United States uh, than it is in this region but there's a, a misalignment between value and education. So, you know, it used to be that you would go and have a, you get a four-year degree and then that degree would confer some status on you and you'd be able to work in, you know, whatever it was that you studied for the rest of your life. That's obviously changed, but there are a lot of universities that are still selling very expensive degrees that really just saddle people mm -hmm. with debt but don't necessarily prepare them for the future. So there's, um, you know, there's talk of a, a student debt bubble in the U.S. and it's been there, you know, for quite quite some times, and it keeps getting larger. But the 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 cost of education, especially at the university level, has outpaced inflation wildly for the last thirty years. Um, and and so you you get people that are maybe you know feel like they have to go to university in order to get a career. And universities are telling them, yes, you have to come here. But if it's a, you know, if it's a mid-tier university and you're not that motivated of a student, you're probably better off saving that 30 grand a year or 40 grand a year that it's going to cost you and putting that towards, uh, towards something else or saving it uh, because you have a lot of, you know, a lot of individuals that are saddled with, um, with debt and they had the promise of a, you know, of a career and they don't really, that, mm. that's not necessarily materialized. The flip side of that, however, is that you do want people to study what they're interested in. It's not that you, you know, you shouldn't necessarily go to university and say, I'm going to study the one thing that gives me the 
the best chance for economic freedom down the road, you, you won't be happy. So there, there needs to be a balance. And, and I think it comes back to teaching, you know, critical thinking skills. Uh, if someone, you know, whatever it is they study, if they have a base level of critical thinking, that's going to carry through to, you know, to all of these different modern economy disciplines. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting. I'm, 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 you know, I, I'm just happy to have this front row seat to see how things change. But, um, over the next, uh, you know, over the next decade, I think you'll, you'll see an increased importance in education, but the, the providers might become more narrow. Uh, and there's so much data mm. out there that the, the ones that aren't producing quality, uh, you know, aren't producing quality educations will probably be called out. And then if you, if you think about the whole wide world of work and what it means to be an employee or, or to be an employer, there's a, there's a, you know, it's now almost incumbent upon the employer to create opportunities for individuals to um, increase their skills and, and to grow within the, the, the company. And I think to date, a lot of that um, has sort of sat in the, the, the realm of HR or learning and development. And it's been a very sort of past approach. Sort of like we should be doing L and D or learning development. We should be, you know, spending X amount on, you know, on each employee, but it, it's, it, it's been approached as though, how do we create an employee benefit from this rather than sort of something that's a bit more elegant to say, how do we create uh, an, uh, an employer or a company benefit from this thing that we need people to learn, but, and, and get people, because it's going to create the employee benefit anyway but get people motivated and push them into the, the things that we, you know, the skills that we need as a, as a company. So the, the merging of, I think, education and competitive advantage, uh, and, and this is sort of how we start the conversation with most of our large enterprise clients, is how do we weaponize education to make you, you know, to, to improve the bottom line uh, or, or to make the company more competitive um, and, and all those other things that, typically are the first things you talk about. Though those just are attendant benefits of of using education in this way. Um, and and the, the universities, especially in the US, that have sort of blurred the lines between um you know between the private sector and uh, the sort of public education sector are those that are, you know, the places that everyone wants to go to, your your Stanford's, your MIT's, um, your Caltech. And so I think there's a real there's a real opportunity. Um, especially for companies to, um, to, to use this as a, as a way to get the workforce that they want uh, and attract, mm -hmm. you know, attract the best and brightest people because they know that if someone comes to work for, you know, whomever corp that they, they can, you know, maybe they start as a data analyst, but there's a pathway for them to mm -hmm. become a data scientist or, you know, a pathway for them to become a software engineer. If that's the, the direction they want to go. And I think that's probably one of the most important trends we've seen amongst uh, people starting their careers, they, they want to be able to grow uh, because the younger generation might not know that, you know, things are changing so quickly. They might not know that they want to do, you know, this thing in digital marketing for the rest of their career, uh, but if they go somewhere and they, and, and there are pathways to, to learn and to grow, I think that's really attractive. And I think importantly, the best and brightest may not necessarily just come from Ivy League. I had a conversation Absolutely. with uh, a people analytic leader and he was telling me he was working back in Venezuela for Pepsi Cola, I think. And he basically applied uh, some analysis and to figure out, actually our best salespeople did not come from top university. Those that came from second tier university or so-called second tier university are in fact outperform uh, those from Ivy League. So that means if we were to double down on getting people from the second tier university, we may have a better outcome in sales. And actually that happened. So I think for companies out there, there's also this, there need to be this understanding and this realization that uh, even education is evolving. The needs of the market is evolving uh, and the economy also evolving equally fast. And with all this coming to you at breakneck speed, uh, you just can't depend on someone to go through the snail pace four years program <laughs> or from a traditional university only to have them obsolete on the day of their onboarding. That, that's a really elegant point to make. It's, uh, it, it's, you know, we always look for grit and determination. Uh, so it doesn't matter where, you know, even if you didn't go to university, uh, if you have those things, 
you know, outside of the data science um, discipline, you, you can tend, you know, you can be successful. Uh, data science requires a bit of background in statistics and, you know, a certain type of mind, uh, but for software engineering, for user experience design, these are all, you know, these are all very achievable um, careers. And, and we want to demystify that so that people don't feel like they have to have a certain type of background or a certain type of credential in order to be, you know, to get that, that job in the, in the modern economy. And, it, you know, I've seen it, you know, so many times personally, uh, when we first moved to, um, to Australia, we hired, uh, uh, someone who was a sort of a new, you know, newly graduated student to be a nanny for our kids. And I made the mistake of inviting, uh, the team over to my house for a, a barbecue. And, uh, some of our, our admissions folks started talking to, uh, to our nanny and within two weeks, she had uh, resigned and was taking a user experience design immersive and is now uh, <laughs> a, a senior designer at the largest, uh, e-commerce platform in Australia and, and is, you know, and, and has a, a solid career. Um, and so it comes from, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter what, what the background is, as long as the grit and determination are, are there. Uh, and a lot of companies are sitting on, you know, tens of thousands of employees and without an idea as to how to, um, you find the hidden talent. Um, and, and so, you know, if you think about our sort of traditional consumer business, we're trying to admit people that we know will have a high level of success. And, you know, as the hundred thousand people have gone through that system, we've gotten really good at identifying markers of success. Um, again, hmm. all kind of falls into grit and determination. Uh, but when we apply those same, uh, that same approach to a population of 10,000 or 20,000 employees, you can start to pull, you know, you can start to find a lot of hidden talent. Uh, and so it makes a lot of sense, you know, the, the evolution of that story you were telling about PepsiCo in, in Venezuela would be how do we identify the existing employees we have to bring those people, to get them to raise their hand and move forward into, um, you know, into new roles. Uh, and I think uh, that's, you know, that's where you can create a lot of economic benefit um, for, for large organizations. Determination. And also I think to make sure that you're happiest taking up that training program, not just following whatever trend that is out there. And with that, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I really enjoyed this conversation with you. For companies and potential learners who may be keen to learn more about yourself as well as General Assembly, where do you suggest they begin? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, it's a really simple website, www.ga.co. That'll take you to wherever you need to go. Um, and you know, we're always happy to have conversations. Um, but it's, uh, it's a wild world out there. Uh, and there are a lot of things that, that are on the horizon. And uh, I appreciate this conversation. So thank you. It's been very thought-provoking. Thank you.